in this episode of Influencers, Grubhub co-founder Mike Evans. It's hard to get somebody to pay for your product. It's even harder to get them to pay for your product a second time. At some point, if your customers hate you, your business will fail. The reason why it's so hard to like get a guy right, to come and fix your stuff, and it's so hard to book them, and it's so hard to get them to call you back, is because there just aren't enough people to do the work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Mike Evans, founder of Fixer and Grubhub co-founder. Mike, nice to see you. Yeah, nice, nice to see you as well. Thanks for having me on. I want to start off by asking you a little bit about uh, the current economic environment and the market. You're sort of steeped in startups and the world of tech. Yeah. What is your take on things right now in terms of where things stand? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, obviously I, I started Grubhub, ran it through the IPO, so I've, I've sort of had a company at scale. I'm back at towards the beginning of a startup again uh, with Fixer. And Fixer is an on-demand handy person service. And um, it's interesting as we see like macroeconomic conditions change, you know, the, the, the cost of labor, the cost of employing people goes up or down. And, and our model is a W-2 model. It's not a 1099 contractor model. Mm. Um, but the, on the flip side of that, the, the prices that, we, that consumers are willing to pay for a high quality product, you know, they sort of track with the labor market. And so, um, you know, from a company, from a startup perspective, it actually hasn't affected us very much, you know, all the volatility in the last year or two. Um, and so, I mean, we, we are growing at like 100% year over year. Like we're not seeing, seeing real headwinds from the economic situation at the startup level. You know, we're not, we're not at scale yet, but um, for right now it seems fine. Right. Talk to us about uh, Fixer a little bit more. Uh, what exactly are you guys doing there? What is that business? Yeah, so Fixer is, like I said, it's an on-demand handy person service. It looks a lot like a marketplace similar to Grubhub or Uber or Thumbtack or one of those. The big difference is that we actually employ the supply side of the marketplace. And so we have W-2 workers uh, who are full-time with benefits who then go into people's homes and fix things. Uh, and the reason we picked that path is because uh, with a highly skilled workforce, retention becomes the most important factor uh, and the quality of the work is a really important factor. And you just can't control that with, uh, with, an, with a contractor marketplace. And so um, the whole thesis of the business is we can deliver a really high quality product to the customer in the home. Yeah, I want to get into some examples of that. So what would I call Fixer for? Uh, so if your toilet doesn't work, whether it won't stop running or it won't start running, right? If you have leaky sinks, installing a sink disposal. Um, hang, we hang a lot of things on walls, we patch walls. You know, the experience of if you had a, a, a serious issue, like with like a, a pipe burst in the winter, um, you know, if you call a plumber in, they'll knock a hole in the wall, they'll fix the, they'll fix the pipe, and they'll walk away. And what we do is we cut a nice hole in the wall, we fix the pipe, we fix the wall, we paint the wall. And so it's a, it's a more complete service. Um, and sort of light plumbing, light electrical, some light carpentry, painting, things like that. Yeah, sort of like a handyman service then for homes. So people who have houses and apartments, Right, uh, it is. It's a handy person service. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, about half of our employees are women. Uh, right, handy person. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Uh, okay. Half are men. Got it. And so we, we yeah. usually say handy person. Got it. Uh, and so, or fixers is really yeah. what we call them. Right. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, and it's how many cities are you in? How many how many employees do you have? Uh, we're in uh, Chicago, Phoenix, Dallas, uh, Denver, and Minneapolis, and okay. uh, and Seattle, uh, and we have about 90 employees. 
and so going on ten thousand. That's the way these things go. (laughs) So, and and so do you know? Do you measure retention rates or you know uh, return customers? What's what's some metrics? Yeah, you you just pick two our two chief Mm -hmm. KPIs, right? Uh Uh, How much um, you know? And 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 I mentioned this in the book about the experience with Grubhub. You know, it's it's hard to get somebody to pay for your product. It's even harder to get them to pay for your product a second time. You have to really deliver something. that is a pun. I didn't mean to do a pun, but yes, a deliver. Oh, okay. uh, you know, a really quality product for people to use your product again and again and again, and that is true whether we're talking about the customers, the homeowners who use the home, or the product we deliver to our workers, the the fixers who actually do the work. We think of the experience that they have on a day to day basis a lot. Um, we think about you know, re- living wage and, and good pay and and training opportunities and all of those things. And so the the product needs to be good for both sides of a of a marketplace. And in our case. We have a we have a W two workforce. We still think of it that way um, to keep people working at the at the company. Uh, yeah. When are you coming to New York? Is my only question. Uh, probably this year. Oh, yeah, excellent. probably within with before twenty twenty three is out for sure. And how's retention slash attrition been in terms of those employees? Uh, it's been great. It's been significantly better than the construction industry as a whole, and that's just an outcome of both. You know, obviously some financial decisions where we're paying well, but mm-hmm. also just culturally. Um, we try to make it a great place to work. Uh, you know, this, it's a team-based approach, which most handy people don't have access to um, outside of a, out, you know, if they're, if they're self-employed. Um, and then just a variety of things from a, you know, cultural touchstones to, um, you know, to the, just the, the safe the environment of safety, right, so that people feel like they can do the work in a, in a safe environment. And, uh, and the other thing that's been really key is um, we expect respect for our workers from our customers. Uh, which is sort of a, an interesting take on things, but um, I, you know the people who are doing the work, it's it's great work, it's noble work, and so um, you know we expect expect our customers to treat our our workers well as well. Well, that is turning things on its head. But given what employees and companies say and uh, convenience stores had to go through during the pandemic um, and endure in many cases, I can understand you accentuating that. Yeah, we. Um, so the, a lot of this grew out of right March of 2020. We lost 80 percent of our business because we have a we have a business that goes into people's homes to do work, and so weathering that was really challenging. But one of the pieces that came out of the as as we started thinking about policies of of reentering people's homes, we were very conservative in terms of testing and mm-hmm. vaccines and mask wearing and all of the all of the mandates um, that the CDC put out. But then we were also really firm on customers had to follow those too. And so um, it's a difficult message to deliver that mm-hmm. like, you know, as a customer, you have to wear a mask in your own home. Right. Uh, and yet everyone appreciated that the fixer, we were saying that to all the previous homes they had gone to. And so right. there was a lot of agreement that was the right way to do things. Mike, you made a big deal out of this distinction uh, between W-2 and 1099 employees. Yes. In other words, full-time employees and contractors. Right. And this has been a huge issue in our economy right now. Yeah, which I am at least somewhat responsible for creating. Right, by Talk creating about, Grubhub. Right, yeah. and Grubhub, yeah. those were contractors. Uh, the drivers are contractors, right. correct. So have you flipped your thinking, or is it there's a time and place for both? Um, both things are true. <laughs> I have both flipped my thinking and there's a time and place. Well, to start, mm-hmm. Grubhub relied on the delivery drivers at the restaurants. It was only um, as the company was at the, approaching the IPO that started to think about Doing delivery themselves, and so and so, I left uh, in 2014, just around that time. But I was there, sort of, for the genesis and the early conversations for that. And uh, you know, fast forward to to now, and you and you look at the um, 
the variety, you know, the sort of three main players, right? There's, there's Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub. And they're not really sufficiently differentiated. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I were to be in, in that space right now, one of the things I would argue very strongly for is that your best drivers should actually be W, it should be your employees, not contractors, so that you can deliver a differentiated product to the customer. You know, that the, the food gets there hot, gets there quick, gets there safely. Um, you know, those things matter to the customer. And in the, in the lack of any kind of differentiation, um, really the three companies just have to compete on, on spending a lot from a marketing standpoint for, for, for first-time customers, and they have a hard time keeping repeat customers relative to back when the product was more differentiated, when those companies were all emerging. And so um, I, I absolutely think that it's, it's the right move to use a W-2 employee workforce when you care about delivering a better product to your customers. How does that apply to Lyft and Uber? I would do the same thing. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm not running those companies, but I think that a hybrid model is the way to go. The gig economy is great if, you, if it's your side hustle. If you, if you want to make some extra cash on the side, the flexibility it provides relative to um, W-2, like traditional W-2 workers is good. Uh, but um, if it's a career choice, you know, we have sort of this understanding in the United States that when you work at a career, you, you advance from a financial perspective and from a skills perspective. And I'm not sure that if you work 40 hours a week for five years at Uber, if you're in a better place than the day you started from a, from a marketable skills perspective. And I think that that can be a real challenge for people. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, have you ever had any conversations with people in Washington about this? Oh, no, I'm, I'm uh, Any politicians I or anything? Uh, I'm really good at creating products for mm -hmm. customers. Mm -hmm. um, I have no idea how to do political advocacy at all. <laughs> got it. All right, so tell us the story of Grubhub and how it got started and your involvement. Yeah, so I wanted a pizza. That's it, that's the whole story. No, uh, no, uh, no, in all seriousness, I, d I wanted a pizza, getting a pizza, even just- You're on the bus. Yeah, I was on a bus, uh, and, and getting a pizza is hard, like calling by phone, look, you're just in finding the restaurants that deliver so to you. So you wanted a Chicago pizza. Yeah, that's right, I wanted a, well, I actually wanted a New York pizza in Chicago, is oh, what I really wanted. Making it hard for yourself. Right, uh, right, and so, uh, yeah, so I, was, I, I had thought about this idea, I had talked through it with my, my uh, soon-to-be partner, Matt, at the time, but it took me a little while to go around, get around to the point where uh, I actually coded up the first version. So I coded up my apartment in Chicago, started selling restaurants shortly thereafter, quit my job like pretty much right away uh, once I started selling restaurants. Uh, and then it, it grew. It grew from there to uh, you know millions of orders, obviously. At first it was just a delivery guide. You can find the restaurants that deliver to you. And then we added transactional piece with phone ordering and then online ordering. Uh, and, and then it grew to the size it is today. All right, wait, I have a million questions. So um, what year was this? And what do you mean you were coding your part? You're an engineer, right? A yeah. computer science, double E major from MIT. So you were coding, meaning writing the code for the company. But, but what was the model and what year was it? Yeah, so in uh, 2002, uh, the model was simply a subscription service for exposure on a delivery guide. And coding it meant uh, during the day, I'd walk into restaurants, I'd, I'd try and sell them on buying like an advertising package. And then in the evenings, whatever feature it is they said they needed before they'd sign up, I would write that software each evening. And then I'd go back the next day and try and sign up the restaurant. And so that was the model to start, was just a subscription basis. It evolved to a per order basis um, around 2004, so about two years into the business. 
Um, and then that was just much better aligned with the restaurants because I was getting them the business and they were only paying for how effective it was. But how did you scale from walking around your neighborhood in Chicago to becoming a national brand? Uh, well, it was an overnight success, 10 years <laughs> in the making. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, for the first four years, um, you know, I quit my job and, and... What were you doing while you were doing, you said you were doing this in the evenings or something. So what no, no, I was getting paid by Grubhub, not very much. Mm -hmm. uh, so I quit my job and during the day I was selling restaurants. Oh, okay. Uh, and then in the oh, evenings no, I, I was coding. But okay, all okay. of it was as, as a as the first employee. Right. Um, and so scaling, the first four years from 2002 to 2006, we bootstrapped, which is, is just a word for uh, running the company without investment. And, uh, and so we were growing on revenue and it, it became, you, know, you, can't, you can't drop below zero dollars to the bank. So uh, the start of the business, it was profitable and it stayed profitable for a long time. And, uh, and so we would just add, I, I would just add uh, salespeople you know, as, as we started to expand. Uh, marketing folks. Uh, I did. I did most of the product for the first four years, uh, and then you know eventually we got to the point where we raised some venture capital, and then really started scaling up the sales and marketing and product teams, um, and sort of rinse and repeat for a decade. And we got to you know 300 cities, 350 cities, and 70,000 restaurants um, just through that steady application of of just working the problem. And remind us where the company ended up. You did an IPO? We did, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the company IPO. What year was that? That was in 2014. Okay. Uh, and then I literally rode into the sunset. I, I hopped on my bike and rode from Virginia to, uh, to Oregon. Uh, and so I left shortly after the IPO. Bicycle or motorcycle? Bicycle. Okay. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, it took three months. Either way, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I rode a bike on my way here to the, the, the Yahoo office as well. <laughs> okay, you keep, keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so what's happened to Grubhub since 2014? So since 2014, the company's really leaned in on its uh, gig economy model and doing the delivery themselves. And then obviously there's been more competition that's entered the space. Okay, um, and talk about that competition. You mentioned the other big two players, Uber Eats and DoorDash, right? But there were a plethora yeah. of others. I mean, and you, you know, you could see a shakeout coming a mile away, right? Yeah. I mean, it, there's over it's saturated marketplace. And people said, well, people said that all the way back in 2002. At the time, there was a company called Quick Order, a company called Order Up. Uh, you know, there was all these different, there was probably a hundred different online ordering companies. Yeah. Um, and that was true at every stage of the business. You know, a little later on, um, there were some pretty well-funded competitors uh, that were launched by European entities, uh, I think. Um, and then after that was Living Social and Groupon got into online ordering. And so there was sort of always competitors. And our philosophy was, if we deliver the best product, if we have the best customer service, and if the food gets to customers more consistently, we'll beat the competition. And that's, that's what worked all the way up through the IPO. And so these big three, do they are the big three, in fact, of the business right now? Yeah, they are right now, yes. And what does the future look like for those companies? I mean, especially, you know, Uber seems to have an advantage maybe because they're connected to another company, or is that a disadvantage? Um, I think it's irrelevant. Honestly, mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know that the extra set of drivers or the fact that drivers can do two different types of jobs really changes the economics behind, you know, what it takes to pay somebody to go do a delivery. I, I think that the three products are shockingly undifferentiated. They're okay. all exactly the same at this point, from the consumer's point of view. And so, what's going to happen is one of them will figure out a way to differentiate, uh, and I think that that company will end up taking over a massive market share. Uh, until the other two then copy whatever it is they're doing. You know, by way of example, Grubhub just launched an Amazon Prime membership uh, uh, partnership. 
mm. um, and so you can get free delivery, um, which is going to be really good for the company as long as they can maintain it as an exclusive. But um, you know, I I would say that partnerships with behemoth companies are not necessarily the best way to differentiate. It's a that's a worrying way to go about it. What do you think about delivery of everything uh, in our economy, which you know Amazon leaps to mind, right? Yeah. And and you know the effect that that's having on brick and mortar businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the next evolution. In you used to go to uh, an independent store, and then you went to a big box store, and now it's delivered to you because you really the ordering transaction stuff that you can do on the internet is so much easier. You don't have to go into a into a store to browse. So I think it's just the natural evolution of um, convenience that customers were going to demand, uh, and so. Um, I think in some ways it was inevitable that we'd go through this. The pandemic certainly accelerated it. Um, I do really like brick and mortar stores. I really do like the, especially in small town America, like, um, you know, as I was riding my bike across the country, and I speak about this a little bit in the book, like, um, those, those sort of independent small businesses in, in like the center of a town create a vibrancy that's hard to copy. And so, um, you know, I think that there's a balance between, um, what that does for the for the color and diversity and um, interest of a of a town or a city, you know, the, the vibrancy of the small businesses there, um, that that certainly would be disappointing if that went by the wayside. Did you guys think about that at Grubhub? I mean, were you taking business away from restaurants, or was it additive? I mean, you must know all about that. Yeah. So we at the time of the IPO, we had sixty eight thousand restaurants on the platform and zero chains. And so what we were doing is in le le leveling the playing field for independent restaurants relative to the big chains. And, um, and we made ordering so much easier that the frequency with, pe with which people did it, our customers, increased by somewhere between six and 15X. And so just the amount, the volume of delivery orders that was happening as a result of the product was just way up. And all of those orders were going to independent restaurants um, at, in, at reasonable rates uh, for for a large part of the company's history. And, uh, and I was really proud of that. I mean, during the housing crisis, 2007, 2008, um, we kept restaurants in business and it felt great. It felt like a real, it felt great to have created a business that made a, such an impact in uh, small business owners' lives. And you didn't want to do chains. I mean, that was obviously a rule that you had at the company, right? You're not going to deliver for McDonald's. That's right. At the time, I felt like, um, chains are always going to be better at negotiating than, you know, and, and trying to extract sort of every bit that they can out of the company and they would end up being at an advantage relative to the independent restaurants. And I think the independent restaurants deliver great food that's, um, there's a lot of variety in it, there's, there's a lot of like flavor, you can get cultural cuisines, there's all these things that are great about independent restaurants that I think the chains sort of gray out. That, it, you know, mm -hmm. it's, I've eaten at Applebee's, it's fine. It's fine when you're on a road trip and like you just need to stop somewhere but I would always rather eat at the diner down the street. There was pushback from restaurants though for delivery services uh, about them taking you know, too much out of the P&L, out of the equation. Yeah. How do you respond to that? They're right. I think that uh, no uh, marketplace should charge more than 12 to 15% of, uh, the t of the ticket revenue to an independent uh, business, whether that's in food delivery or anything. I think if you look at some of the examples of companies that charge really exorbitant rates, Ticketmaster comes to mind. Mm. Everyone hates them, right? <laughs> and uh, at some point, if your customers hate you, your business will fail. Um, unless you have some sort of monopoly power or regulatory influence, 
Um, that's not the right way to go about building a good business. And so I think that there's, uh, th that's commonly called the take rate, the percentage that's mm -hmm. charged to, um, charged to the, to the independent businesses on the supply side of a marketplace. And if it's too high, uh, they go elsewhere for solutions. If it's just right, it's a win-win for both parties. Switching back to Fixer, uh, are you disrupting the independent contractor, handy person business? We, uh, we, I wish we could, but mm -hmm. we can't because there aren't enough of them. The supply mm -hmm. of skilled tradespeople in the United States is insufficient relative to the demand. Uh, and so um, the reason why it's so hard to like get a guy, right, to come and fix your stuff, and it's so hard to book them, and it's so hard to get them to call you back, is because there just aren't enough people to do the work. And it's pretty easy to do a root cause analysis and see that most of the trade schools have closed, and, uh, and there's a stigma associated with going into the trades relative to going into college. And so all of those factors combined for 50 years have created a real supply shortage. And so what we do is we create, um, we train tradespeople from scratch. So people come in with no skills and we very quickly train them on how to do the handy person skills in a lightweight first, but, but building out that skill set over the course of a year. And, uh, and so by creating more supply, um, we're actually what we're trying to do is reboot trade education in the United States in a gender inclusive way. And so um, I would love to get to the point where we're, there's so many independent, uh, independent operators um, that we're competing against them. Uh, but the reality is there's enough business to go around and stuff is just remaining unbroken in a lot of homeowners' homes. Uh, and so that is, that's our mission statement. We fix things, we build people. And so that's, that's our goal. That's fascinating. So the whole trade um, aspect of the economy, I think of electricians and plumbers, um, Talk to us more about that. Is, are there other trades besides those two? Um, are those, I think of those as union jobs. You become yeah. a union electrician or a union plumber. Um, how does that dovetail with just getting, uh, uh, you know, getting training? And is there an actual certificate or a level for a trade school? How does that all work? Yeah, so, um, so there's way more than electricians and plumbers. There's uh -huh. masons and roofers yeah. and uh, crane operators and, and pipe But that wouldn't apply yeah. for you guys. No, but all of those, we don't do, we don't, we don't do any of that specialized work. Right. We're a handy person, and so, right. hand, handy person company, and so um, we do light electrical. We'll switch out a, a light switch for a dimmer switch, mm -hmm. but we won't put conduit behind a wall. That's mm -hmm. for an electrician to do. And so we Got do it. light work, light electrical and light plumbing, uh, and then we refer business on to licensed electricians and licensed plumbers, you know, as building codes require. And so, um, it, what we think we're doing is we're, we're creating an entry path. But handy person work is sort of the, the first rung of the ladder mm -hmm. in terms of the trades. Plumbers get paid a lot more, electricians get paid a lot more, certainly crane operators and welders get paid even more than that. And so uh, our hope is that people find us and they don't have those skills to start. They, they enter the trades, they stay with us for two and a half, three, four years, and then they go on to do a specialist skill uh, and get paid more. And so we want to just open up the the entry point uh, of that pipeline. And historically, you'd ask your uncle or your dad to teach you. And so it's a very male-dominated industry. Um, and if you don't have an uncle or dad to teach you, how do, how do you get into the trades? And so we're trying to answer that question. How are you reaching out to women? So in all of our, first of all, the name Fixer is non-gendered on purpose. Mm -hmm. We talk about handy people all the time. We do all of our advertising in places where uh, we don't just go to the traditional places that construction companies would hire. You know, we, we hire online and on Deed, in Indeed and Facebook and Craigslist and those kind of things. And so um, just the natural 
mix of uh, applicants to our, our training programs is about 50-50. Uh, and so I answer an ad uh, that you guys have for a job, and it sounds like I would probably need a lot of training. Could I come in completely unskilled? Uh, you could, with if you had the aptitude. If you had a customer right. service aptitude and, right. a, and a good attitude and you showed up on time, we will train you everything. Right. Uh, and we start, you know, we don't start, a, a traditional trade school has to start with a lot of background information, like they'll teach Ohm's law, which is voltage equals currents times resistance. Like, as you mentioned, I have an electrical engineering yeah, degree. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we don't, we say that's a plug, <laughs> and here's the wires that go into the back of it. Right. By the way, turn the power off first, right? right? And so we start with the practical. Right. Uh, and then we have people going out on jobs, shadowing more experienced folks um, pretty much in the first week. Uh, and so it's an on-the-job training program uh, in addition to the curriculum we've developed. Yeah. So talking about your education as an engineer, but you're also an entrepreneur, sometimes engineers can make that leap. Sometimes they can't. What is it about your background that allowed you to take your technical training and marry it with an ability to run a company? Or start a company. Yeah, both. The, the, I can literally just describe chapter three in the book, chapter which is, three. Which is uh, what what I wh where this is. I, I talk about this. So I had a I had a teacher in college, one of my acoustics class, Dr. Bose, who started Bose speakers, mm -hmm. and so he's teaching the engineering of the acoustics for the whole class. And wow. in the last week, he sort of puts down his chalk and says, "Let's talk about how you start a business." And he starts going into financial engineering and how. He made spreadsheets and he did projections and at, you know and at, and he figured out that the thing that mattered the most for Bose speakers was um, the time on a shelf. How much time it spends in inventory is the thing that just takes all the capital for speaker businesses. And so they were early pioneers of the outlet outlet store concept. Um, and and so I took that mentality. And then after I had signed up about I don't know 100 restaurants, I thought about this a lot. Like you know I, I made spreadsheets and I thought about. I took an engineering approach to what are the financial levers that are going to make this business really scale. And the thing that mattered more than anything else by, by like 100x was retaining restaurants. If you can keep restaurants on the platform, uh, everything else works out. And so, um, and so that was, I mean, it was a very logical engineering oriented approach. I was also like sort of throwing myself at the problem, selling by day and reading books at Borders about, about how to do sales and stuff like that. And so. Um, I had to learn some skills. And then the final piece of it was, I hired the people who were better than me to do those things. I hired salespeople to do sales once I could afford them and didn't have to like sort of hustle to get sales myself. Right, what is the critical aspect of Fixer? You talked about that at um, Grubhub. What is the key there? The two keys are retaining the, the fixers. So if we invest so much in training them from scratch, we have to have them stick around. You don't do that contractually. You know, we don't, there's no, there's no like, you, we'll train you and you have to work for us. Like that doesn't work. Uh, we do it by making it a great job. Uh, and so that's the key, the key element. And then the other piece is the homeowner has to be really satisfied when you leave. Um, you, know, you had to come in, put booties on, do the fix, clean up after yourself, ask if there's anything else I can do show up on time, all of those things really matter. Uh, and so it really just becomes about retaining both, both sets of customers. I mean, I think of, I think of my, the fixers at the company as my customers in some sense, and also the people, the homeowners are another set of customers. And so providing a great product to both of them is the thing that really matters. Have you wondered, Mike, what it is about yourself that's led you to two very consumer-facing businesses, right? These are not B2B companies, yeah. these are like 
Well, I guess Grubhub is sort of a B2B company, but you're, it's still kind of people-facing, isn't it? Yeah, signing up small, small businesses, um, signing up restaurants, it's about making a personal connection and then providing value over time. Uh, I don't know how to do enterprise sales. I've never sold a hospital on anything. Like, mm -hmm. I've never sold, I don't know how to do a two-year sales cycle. Um, but building a brand is, is, it's not easy, but the principles aren't that hard to understand. Build a great product, be really consistent and authentic with it. Um, and then there's no silver bullets in marketing. You just have to, it's steady pressure over time. And so um, I'm just doing, that's the part that I'm doing the second time around that I didn't have to relearn. The part the second time around that I'm told, it's totally new to me is um, we decided we were gonna teach people, like train people how to become tradespeople. I'm not an educator. I don't know the first thing about how to run a school. And so getting experts and figuring that out has been a, a real learning curve uh, for me. And you had to get real teachers? Yeah, we have, we have instructors and we hired curriculum experts to help us develop the, the curriculum. And, uh, and we just, we had to learn about how people learn, um, which, how adults learn specifically. And so, in fact, there's a book called The Adult Learner that everybody in the company has to read uh, when they join the company. And uh, I happen to believe you can learn a lot from books. Uh, which is part of why I wrote one. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's, it, there's newness to it, too. It's not just the second verse, same as the first. In your book, you say you try to say thank you even to people who give you bad advice. Yeah. Why is that the case? Because you look like a real jerk when someone's trying to help you and you tell them they're wrong. Uh, that's sort of the first order of things. And then the second piece is, you know, by just, th that's sort of the, the, people will stop trying to help you if you're a jerk to them, right? Um, but the second piece is by adopting an attitude that's more humble and, and being willing to learn, one actually learns, right? By being resistant to people's ideas, you might miss something. Somebody might be pointing out a blind spot that you have. And, um, and so it's really important to, to, to approach people trying to help with advice, even unsolicited advice, even wrong unsolicited advice, with an attitude of humility, um, because it's very hard in the moment to, to distinguish what's good advice and what's bad advice anyway. Mm -hmm. And something somebody says might actually end up being really helpful two years down the road. Um, and then there's just sort of this larger principle of treat people well, right? right. Like if somebody's right. trying to help you, just don't be a jerk to them. Right. And, and Mike, you grew up in a small town, what was then a small town in Georgia, Marietta, outside of Atlanta. What was it about growing up there that you think informed you as in terms of what you do now? Yeah, so I was the youngest child. I was somewhat feral, a uh, child of four, and I had a single mom who worked two jobs. And so there was no energy left to make dinner when she came home you know, mm. from the second job. And so we had Domino's like four or five times a week. Uh, that definitely influenced my choices about starting Grubhub. Uh, I'm very, I'm very comfortable with delivery food. Uh, I love delivery food. I love getting pizza or a gyro or chicken wings or, dare I say it, a salad, you know, from mm -hmm. it for delivery. Uh, and so that helped. And then seeing things develop at Grubhub and really coming to understand that businesses make social impact, whether they're thinking about it or not, and it can be negative or can be positive, but the thing that you don't want is it to be unintentional because uh, businesses are huge levers for social change. And, and so going through Grubhub and seeing that I adopted that attitude a little too late. Um, you know, I, I always had sort of a, a, a soft spot in my heart for the independent restaurants, um, but it really didn't become part of the DNA of the company. And so 
that influenced the start of the second company where we decided what our impact was going to be from the very start. And so what we do is we, we train tradespeople from scratch, which is a benefit to the communities we serve. And it also is a good financial decision. And so I, we picked a business, myself and the, other, the rest of the founding team, we picked a business where the social impact and the financial impact can't be divorced. And that was all very intentional. And so um, that's really, that, that experience at Grubhub influenced that. And I would love if somebody who's read this book or listened to this interview um, sort of took that approach for their first business instead of waiting till their second one like I did. Because um, you really can make a huge impact on the world through, through business. Fascinating stuff. Mike Evans, founder of Fixer and co-founder of Grubhub and author of Hangry, A Startup Journey. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwer.